Welcome to the Doc Washburn Show. If you like what we do, please subscribe to our YouTube channel and hit that notification bell. That way, more people will find out about our content and you'll be notified every time we do a new video. Now, you probably remember where you were when you found out about the September 11th, 2001 attacks on our nation. Almost 3,000 people were murdered that day. It was a horrifying violation of our country and our way of life. People of a certain age can't help but recall exactly where we were that morning. I was doing a morning talk show at a radio station in Panama City Beach, Florida. I knew that some Muslim terrorists had tried to blow up the World Trade Center back in 1993. But like most Americans, I knew nothing about the Islamic concept of jihad. I had no idea who Osama bin Laden was. And I don't think I had ever heard of Al-Qaeda, even though I did talk radio for a living. Our guest today already knew and understood all these things. Robert Spencer is the director of Jihad Watch. He's written 27 books, including the New York Times bestsellers, The Politically Incorrect Guide to Islam and the Crusades and the Truth About Muhammad, and the bestsellers, The History of Jihad from Muslim to ISIS. Muhammad to ISIS. And the critical Quran explained from key Islamic commentaries and contemporary historical research. His new book is called The Sumter Gambit, How the Left is Trying to Foment a Civil War. Brother Spencer has led seminars on Islam and Jihad for the FBI, the U.S. Central Command, U.S. Army Command, and General Staff College, the U.S. Army's Asymmetric Warfare Group, the Joint Terrorism Task Force, the Justice Department's Anti-Terrorism Advisory Council, and the U.S. Intelligence Community at Large. He has discussed jihad, Islam, and terrorism at a workshop sponsored by the U.S. State Department and the German Foreign Ministry, and he's a senior fellow with the Center for Security Policy. Robert Spencer, thanks for coming on the program today. I know you've been under the weather recently, and I appreciate your making the time for us. Great to talk to you, Doc. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Now, American Airlines Flight 11 crashed into the North Tower of the World Trade Center complex in lower Manhattan at 8.46 a.m. Eastern Time, the morning of September 11th, 2001. 16 minutes later, 9.03, World Trade Center's South Tower was hit by United Airlines Flight 175. American Airlines 77 hit the Pentagon at 9.37. United 93 went down near Shanksville, Pennsylvania at 10.03 a.m., But do you remember where you were and what you thought when you found out about the first two that came so closely together, the incursions into the World Trade Center on that crisp, clear September morning all those years ago? Yeah, certainly, Doc. I remember exactly where I was at that moment. As you noted, it's like the Kennedy assassination for people a little bit older than we are, that uh, uh, it's indelibly in the memory. Um, I was actually at work and about to uh, get going on a project. And the secretary came in and said that a plane had hit the World Trade Center. At that time, we thought, uh, because we were not in New York City, we thought that uh, it was an accident that some um, individual flyer had uh, flown his plane by mistake into the World Trade Center, and it was a terrible thing. But then, of course, as uh, more... more information came out about it. It became clear that this was a hijacked passenger liner. It uh, 
as the U.S. government immediately noted it was al-Qaeda, and I had no trouble. Of course, as we both know, there's been quite a lot of speculation and a lot of doubt about the official story, but al-Qaeda had been quite active in the 90s and had attacked American interests in Saudi Arabia and had blown up a uh, U.S. uh, ship, the USS Cole, and uh, Osama bin Laden had declared jihad war against the United States. So I didn't have any trouble believing that this was the work of al-Qaeda. And uh, I think there are some reasons to doubt the official story from different various directions. But it does seem clear for a number of reasons that this was indeed something al-Qaeda did that uh, is backed up by statements and actions of their own people, their own allies, Osama bin Laden himself, as well as the uh, defendants who are still awaiting trial 20-some years later now. It's a, it's appalling, but some of the key plotters uh, have never been tried. And they wrote a letter to the U.S. government justifying their actions well over 10 years ago and took full responsibility for the attack. So I think that a lot of the conspiracy theorists, people who think that it was all an inside job, are not really aware that the uh, the jihadis involved have made no secret of their involvement. Now, they could be actors, they could be lying, but they have a much more sophisticated understanding of jihad and Islam that they demonstrate in these communications than anything that I've ever seen come out of any U.S. government official. So if the U.S. government is faking these guys, suddenly they're getting smart about Islam in a way that they remain dumb everywhere else. I find that hard to believe. Now, an ABC TV reporter actually interviewed bin Laden like three years early in 1998, and that's when bin Laden was kind of like, hey, we're we're coming for you guys, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's the first time. I believe it was 96 first, actually, and then 98 again. He wrote two uh, fatwas declaring jihad against the United States, against the Americans, the American crusaders, as he always uh, termed the United States, justifying attacks on civilians on the basis of the idea that we are taxpayers paying into this system. The system is attacking Muslims, and consequently, he considered it justifiable to kill American civilians as combatants, as if they were combatants because they were aiding in the combat that he perceived or wanted to convince Muslims about against Muslims worldwide. Now, he had to do this because in Islam, there are, there's a distinction between offensive jihad and defensive jihad. And offensive jihad is an obligation of the caliph. The caliph is the successor of Muhammad as the leader of all the Muslims worldwide. And the caliph has the authority and even more than that, the responsibility to declare jihad against non-Muslim states on a regular basis. Some authorities say as frequently as every year and to invade non-Muslim countries. When, when, when there were caliphates, we would see this kind of more or less constant warfare that was always started by the Muslim side. But in 1924, the secular Turkish government abolished the caliphate. Now, one of the leading goals of groups like al-Qaeda is to restore the caliphate, but in the meantime, they can only wage defensive jihad because only the caliph is authorized to wage offensive jihad. 
defensive jihad becomes the responsibility of every Muslim worldwide whenever a Muslim land is attacked. So Osama explained in his letters in 96 and 98 that the U.S. had attacked Islamic land, the Palestinians, Somalia, uh, Iraq, and therefore retaliatory defensive jihad was not only justified but required. Well, um, so I'm thinking that a lot of folks who really haven't looked into Islam very much, when they hear you say something like, so this becomes a duty of every Muslim worldwide, they're thinking, well, gee, I I, uh, work with some Muslims who just seem to be peaceful, moderate, mainstream folks who, you know, uh, eschew violence and they may not be actually understanding what you're saying. How, how do you, uh, how do you respond to people saying, well, now wait a minute, every Muslim worldwide, most, most Muslims uh, don't do jihad. So what are you even talking about? Well, what we're talking about is Osama bin Laden saying that it was now the responsibility of every Muslim worldwide to wage jihad. That doesn't mean that every Muslim worldwide thought, oh, Osama bin Laden says I should wage jihad, therefore I must wage jihad. Right. Uh, there, there are, uh, Osama bin Laden was never the Pope of Islam or the President of Islam, any kind of high authority in Islam. He was just a guy from Saudi Arabia who had a lot of money and a lot of connections. Yeah. And uh, his family is one of the richest families in the world. And so uh, when he said this, there were some Muslims who believed his reasoning and some who didn't. And, of course, also we have to factor in the considerations about every religious tradition that not everybody who calls himself a Muslim or Christian or Jew or whatever takes it all so seriously. And so there were plenty of people who may have heard or may never have heard at all. But maybe there were, there were, I'm sure there were plenty of people who heard, oh, Osama bin Laden says we have an obligation to wage jihad against the Americans. And they thought, great, what's for lunch? Uh, you know, they couldn't care less. Um, and they would, yeah, if you ask them what, what they believe in, they would say they're Muslims. But that doesn't incur in them any particular sense of obligation. Right. We both know there are plenty of Christians who feel that way about Christianity, that if you ask them, they'll say, yeah, I'm a Christian, but they don't have the slightest awareness of the real teachings of Jesus or any interest in following them. And Osama bin Laden ain't even Jesus. So uh, in the first place, you got lots of reasons why some Muslims might not pay attention to this. Also, you've got uh, the fact that there's deception, that there were some who said, oh, yes, I, I have nothing to do with Osama bin Laden, and I'm completely against all that, when really they were all for it and were working on it via other means. I mean, I would say, for example, the Council on American-Islamic Relations in the U.S., if you, if you ask them, they hate Osama bin Laden, they have no understanding of Islam, it's anything like his, but the, everything they've done since 9-11 was designed to weaken our resistance and defense against jihad activity. So you got to wonder. They were just going about it in a different way. Oh, very good point. Absolutely. Now, Robert Spencer, you are the only Christian I know who had already been studying Islam 
for years before the 9-11 attacks in our country. What motivated you to look into Islam and how did it provide a framework for you to try to understand what happened on September 11th, 2001? Doc, that goes back to my own family history. My grandparents were exiled from the Ottoman Empire uh, during World War One for declining to convert to Islam. They were Christians in the Ottoman Empire, and the, uh, uh, both the Ottomans who were on their way out, the Ottoman Empire was collapsing, and the young Turks who were secularists, they didn't have any room for the Christians, the Greek and Armenian and Assyrian Christians who had lived in Asia Minor for thousands of years. They envisioned the Ottomans wanted a unitary Islamic state, and they considered the Christians to be Kufar Harbi, infidels at war with Islam, because the Greeks had declared their independence in 1821. The Armenians wanted their independence. The empire was severely threatened by these religious minorities, mostly Christians, who wanted their independence. And so that was considered to forfeit the protection that the emperor or the sultan owed to the Christians, that because that protection was in exchange for subservience. So once they said they wanted independence, they were infidels at war with Islam and could lawfully be killed. From the Turkish nationalist standpoint, they also didn't want them around because they wanted a unitary Turkish state that involved a Muslim identity that was a depoliticized Islam, but was still Islam. And so there was no room for Christians of any kind. And so they were given the choice to convert to Islam or get out. They were getting out. They killed my great-grandfather on the way out. There was a soldier watching them leave, thought he had gold, went and killed him. But the others were able to get out. And anyway, I heard all this, you understand, when I was very young. But what I never did hear was why it all happened. I heard, you know, I would ask my grandmother, my grandmother, Doc, and Barack Obama are the two people in the world that I know of who, who are not Muslims, at least officially, and who say that the uh, most beautiful sound they ever heard was the call to prayer from the mosques. Wow. And my, my grandmother told me that there was a wonderful thing. She would wake up in the morning and hear it. And uh, so I, and she would tell me about how great it was to live there in Chesme, a city on the coast, the uh, the west coast of uh, Asia Minor. And um, so I would, you know, I was like five, six years old. I would say, well, why did you leave? We had to leave. We, we, we were exiled. What's exiled? And she tells me about that. Okay, why were you exiled? Silence. Every time we did this, this was a little dance we would do. And it, it always worked out the same way. It was always choreographed the same. So uh, I was curious and started to study the, once I got into, you know, like high school and particularly in college, started to study the, the, the region, the history of the area, and start, it, all this started to dawn on me, and it all led into Islam. Now, wow. this was where the history books don't even go. You know, and they say that the, 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 the mullahs would come around and say, kill all the Christians. Why? And so I, that just led me into learning about Islam, read the Quran first at that time in college, and started to study about Islam. 
And it was a lingering, enduring interest growing out of that, trying to answer that question. And then, of course, at the same time as that's all going on, the Iranian hostage crisis is happening. And I began to see, hey, wait a minute, this this has some similarities here yeah. uh, and, and, and started to put two and two together. Uh, in the 90s in particular, this began to be a matter of interest to other people. And um, long story, but I started consulting with some individuals and groups about Islamic issues because they were seeing like the USS Cole that I mentioned before blow up and the Kobar Towers in Saudi Arabia and so on. I wonder what was going on. And uh, I was in a position where I was able to answer that question, and that led to doing uh, what I've been doing ever since, really. So do you think your grandmother was embarrassed to answer the question about why they were doing it? Or do you think she thought, well, Bobby's too young. Uh, I better spare him this right now. Or do you think maybe she just really didn't even know? I think it's a combination of all those things. Okay. Uh, For years, I thought it was the second one that, you know, she was thinking I was very small child. She doesn't want to worry me or scare me with this, with this business and it's complicated and so on. But I'll tell you something, doc. uh, I don't think the Greeks in general have any idea what happened or why. They know the Turks got very mean and threw them out of their ancestral homeland uh, because Asia Minor, what is now Turkey, what people think of as the Turkish homeland, was actually Greek, Christian, and Armenian Christian going back to the time of of Augustus Caesar, you know, uh, going back to the time of of Jesus himself. These people were Greek-speaking and Armenian-speaking Christians. The Turks came from Central Asia. And uh, starting in the in the 1300s, and started to push them out, and fi- finally, of course, uh, I, I'm sorry, the 1100s, I believe it was, and uh, started to push them out. Finally, yeah, I'm sorry, man, I'm really blanking because I just wrote a book about this. It'll be out in November, but uh, 1071, they won a huge victory, the Turks, over the Roman Empire, the Byzantine Empire in Manzikert in eastern what is now eastern Turkey. And that destroyed the Byzantine army, the Roman army in Asia Minor and enabled the inexorable advance of the Turks. And little by little they took it over. And even however at the beginning of the twentieth century, when my grandparents were there, still all of Western Asia Minor going up to the Pontus, the area south of the Black Sea. And all down the coast, it's it was all Greek Christians. And Constantinople in 1914 was 50% Christian, even though it had been conquered by the Muslims in 1453. But now it's less than 1% Christian. They got rid of them all, and they erased all these historic communities. And so um, that started, like I say, really with the Battle of Manzikert, 1071, although they were around before that and culminated with the fall of Constantinople and the destruction of the Roman Empire, 1453. But the community stayed there for the most part. And uh, it was only when the Turkish nationalists took over and said, there's no Turkish identity without Islam. They started getting rid of these people 
in large numbers. So I think she didn't want to talk about that. She didn't even know necessarily. Uh, I think a lot of the Greeks, they, they know that history. Yeah. Pretty much any Greek you speak to knows that history. But yeah. they don't know any idea why. And I remember once about 20 uh, some years ago, actually, when I was starting to work uh, much more uh, publicly and much more on a full-time basis on these issues, I came across a book by a Greek writer whose experience was almost exactly like that of my family. Her grandmother was exiled, but they were, they were Pontics from the, from the Black Sea area. And uh, she gradually pieced the story together like I did. Yeah. And I read this book. I was very moved because it was just like story of my family, practically. And it was really wild because she did something that I was never, I was never able to do. She took her grandmother back to Turkey to the little town where she grew up. And they were walking down the street and they asked the locals, where were the Greeks living? Where were the Christians' houses? And you know, the Turks said, no Christians ever lived here. They've completely erased the memory. Wow. Uh, nobody knows. But the thing about it is, the reason why I'm telling you this, Doc, and going on and on is this. I wrote to that writer. I was so moved by her book. I wrote to her and said, gee, what a great book you wrote. And it was very powerful, and it moved me. And as it happens, I'm doing work in understanding the ideological underpinnings of why that happened and what motivated these people to do these terrible things. Yeah, And she wrote back saying, you're a racist, bigoted Islamophobe. This has nothing to do with Islam. This is just the Turks being mean. And I think that's really the level that most Greeks are at, I'm sorry to say. In my experience, they have no idea why this happened. They think the Turks are just uniquely unkind and cruel people that they just happen to run up against. And that's about it. And so maybe she didn't know and couldn't tell me. Maybe she wanted to spare my feelings and not frighten me when I was a very small child. Maybe some combination of both of those things. More of our interview with best-selling author Robert Spencer is coming right up. If you've tried to buy a car recently, you realize you may have a hard time finding what you're looking for. People I know have actually bought vehicles from hundreds of miles away from where they live. That's where Red River Auto comes in. Red River Auto is a big old car dealership in the middle of the USA that believes in freedom, including your freedom to buy a car, truck, van, or SUV the way you want to. You can buy online and they'll drive it to you no matter where you are. Red River Auto wants to make your car buying experience as easy and transparent as possible. Red River Auto Group has perfected the online buying process. Just go to redriverauto.com and pick from hundreds of new and used vehicles. You can purchase a vehicle online if you have any questions. One of Red River's trained experts will help you through the whole process. Red River Auto makes car buying online easy. Your whole car buying process is completely transparent. If you want to buy a car, truck, van, or SUV, order online from the nationwide car dealer that believes in freedom. The dealer that will deliver your vehicle to your front door, no matter where you live in the continental U.S., RedRiverAuto.com. You'll be glad you did. I want to tell you about the best-kept secret in American healthcare. Are you having problems with sinuses and allergies? Are you experiencing dizziness, vertigo, problems with your blood sugar, fibromyalgia, eczema, psoriasis, migraines? The Arkansas Upper Cervical Center might be able to help you. Let me tell you how. Your skull weighs anywhere from 8 to 15 pounds. It rests on the top bone of your spinal column, the atlas or C1, which only weighs 2 ounces. 
So it's really easy for your atlas to get out of alignment. If it does, your whole spinal column can get kinked up like a chain. When that happens, your central nervous system isn't able to communicate with the rest of your body as it's designed to do. I had severe hay fever for five or six weeks every spring all my life and migraines year-round. When I got my atlas adjusted, the hay fever went away and the migraines went away for good. Whatever malady you're suffering from, do yourself a favor. Call my friends at the Arkansas Upper Cervical Center, 501-279-2009, for a free consultation. They've helped so many people I know. Please call them to see if they can help you. That number for your free consultation is 501-279-2009. If you're outside Central Arkansas, go to their website, turnmypoweron.com. Click on the tab that says find a doctor near you, and I sure hope you can. Mike Lindell says, because of your amazing support for MyPillow 2.0, he's expanded MyPillow's USA manufacturing and jobs. So he's clearing out his percale bedsheets by giving them to you at closeout prices. King size percale bedsheets, only $39 a set. Queen size, only $35 a set. Full size, $29. And twin size, just $25. Use promo code DWS to take advantage of this once in a lifetime offer. Right now, Mike's biggest My Slippers closeout sale ever is on. Get Mike's all season My Slippers and Sandals at clearance prices. Mike's all season Moccasin Slippers are just $25. Mike's My Slipper Sandals are just $19.50. They're both made with Mike's patented impact gel that absorbs and relieves pressure so you can comfortably wear them all day long. Just use promo code DWS for huge discounts. Remember, DWS stands for Doc Washburn Show. MyPillow.com quantities are extremely limited at these amazing prices, so please order now. Just use promo code DWS. And now we continue our interview with Jihad Watch's Robert Spencer. There's the elephant in the living room here because you mentioned the word Armenian, and there was a genocide of the Armenians um, in the early 20th century. And Hitler actually said, well, they got away with that. We could get away with uh, killing a bunch of Jews. And then there's what's going on right now Mm -hmm. in Central Europe against Armenians. And before we get to my prepared questions, since you brought this up and since hardly anybody watching this video will probably have any idea what they haven't even heard about this. Perhaps you could spend a couple of minutes on that. Well, the Armenian genocide in the first place, Doc, is happening at the same time as what I was just talking about. Yeah. The Greeks being exiled uh, was the same thing, really. They were getting rid of the Christians, and they killed a million and a half Armenians, a million Greeks, and 300,000 Assyrians. The Greeks were more often exiled than killed because of geography, because they were over in the western part of the country. And that's that's near Greece, near Europe in general. So not only do you have Greece, and there were population transfers and such, but you also have the New York Times and the European press, and they're walking around in Constantinople asking uncomfortable questions. And they, the New York Times, oddly enough, very unlike what it is now, wrote about this forthrightly. 
and about how the uh, Greek Christians were getting persecuted in a very vicious and violent manner. The Armenians were farther east, out in the country, where the Western press wasn't in so much evidence. So they got killed more because they were there was nobody looking. That's one thing. Mm. The uh, Armenian genocide took place for the same reasons that the Greek genocide took place and the Assyrian genocide, and that was to clear the country of Christians and make it Muslims only. And nowadays, the independent country of Armenia is a former Soviet republic. And if you look at the map, all the way across from Asia Minor into Central Asia, which is the real ancestral homeland of the Turks, where you find Turkmenistan, the former Soviet republic, yeah. uh, that whole area is, is the Turks, all the way across from Turkey into Azerbaijan and into Turkmenistan. But there's one little enclave that is not Turkish and not Muslim, and that's Armenia. And so now they're trying to finish the job and destroy Armenia so that you have this one huge Turkestan stretching from Istanbul all the way across into the middle of Asia. And that's the goal. But there's, there's like a, a blockade going Yeah, that's about uh, Artsakh. Artsakh is more commonly known in the West as Nagorno-Karabakh. And if you look on a map, Nagorno-Karabakh, or the Armenians call it Artsakh, is in Armenia is in Azerbaijan, but it's Armenians. Yeah. And it's an enclave of Armenians that is in the country geographically of Azerbaijan. Azerbaijan, of course, is as I'm saying, is Muslims and they're allied with Turkey. And the Armenians are Christians, and they're the only Christians in that area remaining. And there was one road that was an open road that led from Artsakh into Armenia proper. Yeah. And the Azerbaijanis have now blockaded that road for weeks, months, and are starving out the people in Artsakh with the idea ultimately of destroying it altogether, getting all the Armenians out of there and filling it with Muslim Azerbaijanis. This is the same thing that has that created the Islamic world to start with. If you would go back to the beginnings of Islam, Egypt was Christian, Syria was Christian, North Africa was Christian. The whole heart of the Islamic world was Christian, 99% Christian. And the... Uh, Muslims came in, they conquered the area, they put various kinds of pressures upon the Christians, they persecuted them in various ways, they subjected them to the legalized discrimination of dimitude, and ultimately the Christians left or converted to Islam, and there's only a tiny minority of Christians left. This is how it happens all over the world. It's happening now with the uh, Armenians in Artsakh, as well as in Nigeria, in Somalia, and elsewhere. <laughs> if if only um, there was a uh, some kind of an energy company like Burisma and Artsakh that would be willing to give Hunter Biden a million dollars a year to sit on their board, then perhaps uh, the Biden administration, Secretary of State Anthony Blinken, could be <clears throat> talked into expressing some concerns for the people who are being starved there. But uh, um, that's that's not happening, and and. And what you just explained about this 
99% of the people watching this video are like, how come we haven't heard about this? Well, they're not, not how come they know why they haven't heard about it, but they haven't heard about it. So getting back to the September 11th, 2001 attacks in our country, what do you think our leaders to this day do not want us to know about 9-11? That it was a Saudi Iranian operation. That's the main thing. Yeah. The Saudis and the Iranians have both been multiply linked to 9-11. And I would imagine that if, if, if you went to New York City or Los Angeles or Chicago, which I wouldn't recommend, uh, and walked down the street and asked 100 people, none of them, zero, would know that. But the, in the first place, the 9-11 Commission report had the famous 28 pages that were redacted that have never been fully released, although a few, uh, some of them was, were released a few years ago. Uh, but this, that was about the Saudi involvement. And we do know a great deal about the Saudi involvement. And also, we know some things that we don't know. That is, we know that there's more to it, but we don't know exactly what it is. Uh, what I mean is this. In the first place, we know that there was a guy who was very close to the hijackers, who was working with the hijackers, and he had Prince Bandar, George W. Bush's friend, on speed dial. Why is Bandar talking to a guy who's multiply linked to jihad terrorists? Well, nobody ever asked him. Why did George W. Bush have Bandar to the White House? Right after 9-11? We don't know. But anyway, the Saudi, there are multiple high-level Saudis with very strange connections to the 9-11 hijackers. And also, like I said, multiple weird stories. There was a guy Doc, I used to know. He's passed away now, but uh, he was actually very sick at the time of 9-11. He was in the Mayo Clinic, and he told me this personally that he had been in the Mayo Clinic all through the summer of 2001. And he was an American, but he said that pretty much 90, 95% of everybody else who was in the Mayo Clinic in the summer of 2001 were Saudi sheikhs because they came over for our superior health care yeah. that we had then that we've thrown sure. away. But anyway, that's another story. Um, yeah. And... On September 11th, in that, on that morning, he was still there, this gentleman that I knew. And he told me he left his room and went downstairs for breakfast. And this is before the first plane hit. And all the Saudis were gone. The whole place had been full of them on September 10th. And on the morning of September 11th, it was cleared out. And every last Saudi had left the Mayo Clinic. Now, he was there. I have no reason to doubt his word. Another thing, of course, is that we do know that George W., uh, the only planes that were flying after 9-11 were planes flying the bin Laden family out of the United States and taking them back to Saudi Arabia, even though there's never been any connection between made at least publicly between the bin Laden family and 9-11. It was uh, announced to the American people that, you know, we were so racist and bigoted that we would go picking on this man's relatives. So they had to be taken out for their own protection. Okay, sure. But then you have other strange things. Like there's, there was a story that was widely reported actually uh, that then got lost, but there was a family in Florida, Saudi family, young family, you know, thirties, 
little kids, uh, and they had lived in Florida for some time. And on September 11th, it was just another day. It was a very beautiful day, as you may recall, all, yeah. all over the country. Yep. And uh, they were make, the, the, the wife was making dinner. The little kids were playing in the yard with their toys. It's a normal day, beautiful day. And then they disappeared. They vanished. Nobody's ever seen them again. You can look this up. There's still probably the internet's getting scrubbed, but I think you can still find the story about this. The food was still cooking on the stove and the toys were still strewn around the yard and the family was in the middle of living their life in Florida and they vanished. Wow. Now where'd they go and why? I don't know, but that's the Saudis. Then you have doc, the Iranians. And this is where people say, Oh, this is crazy. You're talking crazy conspiracy theories. No, I am not. What I'm going to tell you about the Iranians in 9-11 was established in court when Iranian families sued the Iran- – I'm not sorry, 9-11 victim families sued the Iranian government, alleging that it had a role in 9-11. And they won. And a judge actually uh, ruled that a building in New York City – that was owned by the Iranian government had to be sold and the proceeds turned over to these families. Wow. I don't know if that ever happened because the Iranian government can ignore what a U.S. court says. But the, nonetheless, that's a ruling that was done in a U.S. court. It's a matter of public record. And they established that the Iranian government had extensive role, had an extensive role in the planning of 9-11. And they worked with the Saudis. A lot of contact in those days between the Saudis and the Iranians. And that's the first place where people say, nah, this couldn't be because they hate each other. And they do hate each other. But there's an old Arabic expression that translates, my brother against my brother, but both of us against our cousin. Uh, they hate each other, but they hate infidels more than Sunnis hate Shia and vice versa. So they're happy to work together against non-Muslims. The clearest indication of this is the fact that Iran to this day funds Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad, which are Sunni Jihad groups fighting against Israel, even though Iran is Shiite. So anyway, the thing about 9-11 and the Iranians, Imad Mugnia, Imad Mugnia was a Hezbollah operative who had been in the United States, crossed over uh, from, the, from Mexico, incidentally, and Imad Mugnia flew, personally escorted, some of the 9-11 hijackers into Iran. And from Iran, their passports were not stamped when they went to Iran, so it wouldn't raise any suspicions when they returned to America. They were taken into Afghanistan to the Al-Qaeda training camps and trained how to fly planes and all that stuff. And then they went back to the United States. The Iranians... The Iranian government actively facilitated all this, knowing exactly what was going to happen and working to make it happen. And Imad Mugnia was their guy. Hezbollah is a wholly owned and operated subsidiary of the government of the Islamic Republic of Iran. Wow. 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 So, I mean, a lot of folk who may agree or disagree with you and me on different issues related to 9-11 have been pointing now for 22 years to the fact that, well, we went after Saddam Hussein. 
We went after uh, the Taliban in Afghanistan, but 15 of the 19 hijackers were Saudis. And uh, we just said <clears throat> Saudis are our friends. And, you know, you, you kind of really gave a lot of detail on that. So, so let me ask you something. It, it is often said that Islam is a religion of peace that has been hijacked by a tiny minority of extremists. What's your response to that? Well, that's hogwash. It's nonsense. It's a lie that's based on uh, the assumption that most Americans are ignorant of Islam, which is a completely true assumption. And so they will believe people that they trust. And so if the people that they trust are lying to them, in this case, as in so many others, they have no way to tell. And so Hillary Clinton, I think, said, made the, 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 the most ridiculous formulation of this when she said, uh, Muslims are peaceful people who have nothing whatsoever, nothing whatsoever to do with terrorism. And that's just, it's just so howlingly absurd. But people don't know. People don't read the Quran. People don't read Robert Spencer books. And so they don't have any idea what Islam teaches. But Islam actually is the only religion in the world that has a developed doctrine and legal system and theology that calls for warfare against unbelievers and exhorts believers to wage that war in various different ways under certain circumstances. And 9-11 was one episode in this 1,400-year-long war. Yeah, so when you wrote The Politically Incorrect Guide to Islam and the Crusades, some months later... uh, Andy McCarthy did a review uh, of your book in the National Review talking about the fact that you were saying some truths that were very difficult and very inconvenient and that a lot of folks in the conservative political intelligentsia just didn't want to deal with. And then a couple of years later, he wound up writing a book also called Willful Blindness. And the recurring theme in your book and in his book seems to be, because he was in the interest of full disclosure, he was a federal prosecutor. He was a guy that got the job of going after the blind Sheikh Abdul Rahman and his merry band of jihadists who tried to blow up the World Trade Center in 1993. And what he said when I interviewed him was he said, well, I was an Irish Catholic kid from the Bronx. And uh, for some reason, I just thought that these jihad guys must have been this, these, the, the, you know, the, the, the tiny minority of extremists that were um, perverting this great religion of truth. And he said, I had to read hundreds of pages of documents to prepare for uh, the trial. And I came to the horrifying conclusion that, no, that actually, this is kind of like uh, mainstream Islam. But, but the willful blindness, it <clears throat> is just too painful, in my humble opinion, for our leaders, whether it's somebody like uh, George W. Bush or Condoleezza Rice or, or even Ron Paul. I mean, they cannot bring themselves to consider the possibility that there might be um, some religious motivation for jihad against us infidels. Uh, you even... Um, debated a guy who's very popular in conservative circles, a guy named Dinesh D'Souza, who is well known for some 
some pretty good documentaries, uh, political documentaries going after Obama and, and stuff like this. But back in the day, um, he was one of the leading voices saying that, you know, um, the uh, the Islamic uh, jihadists, well, they they are motivated by the decadence of American society. And, and, and actually, conservative Christians and traditional Muslims ought to have a lot in common. And, uh, well, he, he didn't do too well in, in the debate because you were bringing facts. Maybe you can speak to not only Dinesh D'Souza debate, but this this bigger problem of willful blindness amongst our uh, leaders, even hardcore conservatives. Yeah, it's a very large problem, probably larger than it was even then. Um, yeah. But I can tell you that Dinesh D'Souza debate, Doc, that was at CPAC, the Conservative Political Action Conference of, I believe it was 2007. Yeah. And I was told, I didn't know this at the time of the debate, but I was told after the debate by somebody who was in a position to know, I don't want to reopen this old controversy and get everybody talking, but so I'm not going to name names here, but uh, I can certainly name names to you in private and tell you the whole story. But in any case, a uh, very well-placed source told me that CPAC's board actually had a meeting in which I was one of the primary topics of discussion. Now, these are the leading members of the conservative movement in the United States, or at least the leaders of the American Conservative Union, which put on CPAC. And they thought that it was a very important item of, on the agenda for the 2007 CPAC conference that what I was saying be discredited. And they spent the better part of a whole meeting of this board trying to figure who would be the best person to debate and destroy me at CPAC so that my ideas would not take further hold among conservatives. And they picked Dinesh D'Souza. Now, as you said, and I share the view, but of course, that's me talking, but I don't think he did very well in the debate. But the idea was this was the Republican conservative establishment, and they set up that debate because they wanted to push the notion that Islam was a religion of peace that had nothing to do with terrorism. And that was why they did it. There was another piece of this, and that was the Wall Street Journal. Gave a talk in New York City. This goes back probably 20 years. It was very early on after 9-11, maybe 21, 21 years, uh, 2002 or three. And there was a Wall Street Journal uh writer there. I don't remember what uh, this person's role at the journal was, but um, she went back to the Wall Street Journal board and said, hey, I heard this guy speak. He makes a lot of sense. We should feature him in the Wall Street Journal. <laughs> now, what happened then was, yeah, I know. Another individual who is very high up in the Wall Street Journal. And once again, I could, I'll could i tell you his name off the air, but he said, if we feature this guy and talk about this, we'll end up getting the United States in a war with every Muslim country on earth. And so it seems like it was a pragmatic decision on the part of the Republican establishment that they thought, well, there's 57 countries in the Organization of Islamic Cooperation or the Organization of the Islamic Conference, as it was called at that time. And if we start talking about Islam in connection with this and not saying that Islam has nothing to do with this, then all those countries that are Muslim are going to get mad. Now, I don't know that that's true at all, because since then, of course, we've had Donald Trump 
go to a meeting in Saudi Arabia and speak to uh, many high up Muslim leaders and say, you have a problem in your own house that you've got to deal with. And we didn't go to war with anybody. So I don't know that it was really true. And I don't really think that denial and willful ignorance is ever a good course of action. But I do know, and I'm in a position to know, and there's more stories I could tell you in this line. The Republican establishment was against this idea from the beginning and did its very best to quash it. Our interview with Robert Spencer of Jihad Watch continues in just a moment. You know, the great Ronald Reagan once said, inflation is as violent as a mugger, as frightening as an armed robber, and as deadly as a hitman. Have you thought about the benefits of investing in precious metals? Here are five profound benefits. Number one, investing in precious metals is a hedge against inflation. Number two, it's a great way to diversify your portfolio. Number three, asset liquidity. Number four, precious metals tend to be a store of value. They don't tend to depreciate over the long haul. And last but not least, number five, precious metals can be a hedge against geopolitical uncertainty and the struggling U.S. dollar. Andrew Sorcini with Beverly Hills Precious Metals has been involved in gold and silver for over 40 years. Beverly Hills Precious Metals brings precious metals to the homes of everyday American citizens. Mike Flynn told us about them, and they are our gold buyer of choice. To find out more, just Google Beverly Hills Precious Metals. Make sure you ask about the general Mike Flynn silver coin and tell them Doc Washburn sent you. Beverly Hills Precious Metals helps folks protect their finances, wealth, and investments. If you want to drop your big liberal cell phone carrier, Patriot Mobile, America's only Christian conservative wireless carrier, is a perfect solution. Patriot Mobile has exceptional nationwide coverage and uses the same towers the main carriers use. Patriot Mobile guarantees your coverage. Patriot Mobile has plans to fit any budget, along with great discounts for our veteran and first responder heroes, as well as multi-line users. And switching to Pager Mobile usually only takes 15 to 20 minutes. When you switch to Pager Mobile, you shift your support from the leftist progressive agendas of Big Mobile to the Christian conservative causes of Patriot Mobile. Patriot Mobile donates a portion of every dollar earned to organizations that fight for causes you care about. A portion of every dollar they earn is given back to the causes that support organizations that fight for First Amendment religious freedom, freedom of speech, Second Amendment right to bear arms, sanctity of life, and the needs of our veterans and first responders. Now more than ever, it's important to band together and support companies that share our conservative values. Switching is easy. Just do what I did. Go to PatriotMobile.com or call their U.S.-based customer service team at 972-PATRIOT. Make sure you use promo code DOC, that's D-O-C, for free activation. Yeah, let me ask you something. Why continue shopping big box stores if you can get the items you need from a family-owned company? Now you can get around this crazy inflation by shopping factory direct at a family-owned made-in-America manufacturer. Americans are walking away from the big box conglomerates and deciding to buy only USA. Join with fellow patriots to cut off the cash flow of the big woke corporations that are trying to destroy our country. These products include fresh American-raised beef, raised in the Montana mountains near Yellowstone. This beef is known as Never Ever. Never has the animal ever been exposed to antibiotics, hormones, or vaccines. 
This prime or high choice beef is shipped directly to your door. Pricing and availability is exclusive only to our members and isn't shipped anywhere else in the world. Let's start voting with our dollars to make sure our purchases are supporting companies that promote freedom. Email us at buyonlyusa at proton.me and I'll have one of my guys contact you. Buyonlyusa at proton.me. And now the conclusion of our interview with best-selling author Robert Spencer. Yeah, one of the things that I really liked that, that Trump did early in his term was to go to Saudi Arabia and to use apparently a very forceful Arabic term about the jihadists when he's talking to the leaders of Saudi Arabia, drive them out. Mm-hmm. And man, you got to give credit where it's due. I mean, that that was very impressive. Okay, so. Since you brought this up, let me play devil's advocate here for just a minute. I spoke to someone from the U.S. intel community who basically said that after 9-11, our government was actually well aware acts were religious, that the attacks were Islamic in nature. They are under no illusions about that, but they also had the belief that there were probably hundreds of millions of Muslims who might not be aware of that because a lot of Muslims aren't really schooled in the, in the Quran and the, and the other uh, so-called holy books. And there were facets. There were people high up in our government politically and the Intel community who didn't want to make hundreds of millions of Muslims worldwide think, oh, so I'm the enemy, huh? Because I'm a Muslim, huh? Well, we'll just see about that. So they saw portraying Islam as a religion of peace as actually part of an effort to keep the peace because we had enough jihadists already. They didn't want to nudge anybody else in that direction. And this guy that I spoke to not too long ago um, seem to think that the um, that decision was uh, was successful. He was actually a guy apparently who was operating in other countries to try to keep the peace. And there have been plenty of jihad attacks, but he's of the impression. You know, you're talking about your 57 countries in the uh, organization of the Islamic um, cooperation. He's uh, of the impression that if we just said the truth and accepted, well, you know, there it is, and there it is in your hadith, that things would have been a lot worse than they were. What, what, what do you think about that? Well, of course, in, in the first place, we'll re- never really know. We, we can't really say. He, he can't say with any greater authority than I can say the contrary that this would have happened because nobody really knows what would have happened. But yeah. I can give you some details that contradict that. In the first place, I did want to note before I start that, that he's making essentially the same argument that the Wall Street Journal guy was making. Exactly. If we say this, we'll end up with a much wider conflict. Yeah. Now, the thing is, though, that the Muslims are the first people who know that Islam is not a religion of peace. They will say that to lull Westerners into ignorance and complacency, but they know full well, they know better than we do what's in their texts and teachings. 
And at other times when this has not been such a point that was controverted, not such a controversial point, that is, you have Muslims freely avowing and openly avowing. Yes, of course, there's violence that's justified in these various circumstances, and this is part of our religion and so on. I'm making no secret about this. Um, so acknowledging that, I doubt, would have enraged people who know that it's true. And calling upon them, nonetheless, to, for pragmatic reasons, resist these people is perfectly reasonable uh, uh, course of action that I think has been borne out by a lot of what has happened in the world since then, that we have um, the Saudis still working with the United States to some degree. There's a great deal of debate as to how beneficial that alliance really is to the United States, but they know very well. These guys are Wahhabis. They're very hardcore. They know very well that Islam doesn't teach peace. And they never had any trouble helping us against Al-Qaeda because Al-Qaeda threatened the Saudi monarchy as well as it threatens us. Sure. Because Al-Qaeda believes that there only should be a caliph and no king of Saudi Arabia. And so even though they knew that what Al-Qaeda was saying about Islam was true, they don't want it. And if we had been more intelligent and appealed to people on the basis of these pragmatic considerations, we don't have to get into theology and talk to them about changing their religion. Just like the Abraham Accords, you know, that that Trump brought about. We didn't go to Qatar, not Qatar, we didn't go to Bahrain and uh, what's the other one? Um, the UAE. Djibouti? Say you, yeah. uh, Djibouti is peripheral. We, we, we didn't go to the, 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 the Gulf states and say, you have to change your theology and stop all the Islamic anti-Semitism. We ignored the Islamic anti-Semitism. We didn't pretend either that we didn't go to them and say, hey, we know that Islam loves Jews. Because the Quran says the Jews are the worst enemies of the Muslims. That's chapter 5, verse 82. You can look it up. And so if the Quran says that, then there's, it's just fatuous to go to them and say, we know that Islam loves Jews and Judaism. You don't have to say anything at all. You can just say, look, we know that you are states right next to Iran and that Iran has designs on you and you are Sunnis and they are Shia. And Israel is also threatened by Iran. So really, your interests are better served by an alliance with Israel. And they say, yeah, of course, that makes sense. Now, maybe it's not going to last because of Islamic theology, and ultimately the anti-Semitism will reassert itself. But insofar as it does last, it's a benefit for everybody involved. And that didn't, in, 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 you understand, we didn't have to go and pre- play pretend about Islamic theology to get that deal. We didn't say anything about Islamic theology, and we shouldn't have said anything about it after 9-11. So it also might not last because of uh, the Biden administration's concerted efforts to undercut peace in the Middle East. I recently talked to uh, Frank Gaffney, uh, Center for Security Policy, who says that Joe Biden is not only compromised by communist China, he's captured by communist China. So the question that I have, because you had a recent book out about uh, how, how we lost Afghanistan, is Joe Biden also captured 
by the jihadists. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And he's aiding them in any way he can. The primary example of that is the Taylor Force Act. The Taylor Force Act is a Trump-era law that was passed and is still the law of the United States, named after an American who was killed in Israel and uh, in a terror attack. And the Taylor Force Act specifies that no U.S. funds can be given to a, an entity that supports terror. The Palestinian Authority pays the families of terrorists and pays imprisoned terrorists. So we shouldn't be giving them a penny. And the Biden administration is blithely ignoring the Taylor Force Act and lying about it, saying there's a humanitarian exception and you can give humanitarian aid. In the first place, there is no such exception in the Taylor Force Act. And in the second place, that's a stupid argument because if, if look, Doc, if you have a hundred bucks and you're going to yeah. go buy, uh, uh, what are they, uh, meth, then I give you, 50 bucks and say, don't buy meth with this, only buy lunch. Well, then, okay, you've, your other hundred is freed up to buy the meth because you have my 50 to buy lunch with. You don't have to spend your hundred on it. That's, yeah. ba- that's third grade stuff. If we give the Palestinians money, they have more money for the terrorists. And the Biden administration is doing this over and over. And, of course, there's a notorious withdrawal from Afghanistan. Yeah. Money is fungible. And I just don't think anybody, talking about the notorious withdrawal from Afghanistan, I don't think anybody who paid attention to how the Biden administration did that, because there's a guy recently who testified, I'm a sniper. And they wouldn't let me shoot the guy who we knew was going to do the suicide bombing. We knew that's why he was there. We knew he was about to kill uh, a bunch of our um, brothers in arms. And I could have I could have shot the guy and taken him out and they wouldn't let me. So there's nobody who looked at that whole situation and thought that uh, Biden. And his team were trying to do anything uh, but get Americans killed and get Afghanis who had cooperated with us killed. There's no other way of looking at it, right? Oh, yeah. Look, we had Bagram Air Base. Bagram Air Base was secure. We could have gotten everybody out safely through Bagram Air Base. Instead, Biden's people closed Bagram Air Base in the dark of night without telling the Afghan government. And everybody had to go through Kabul Commercial Airport. And so there was huge crowds. You remember the videos. And the most ruthless and strongest people got to the front of the line to get on the planes. Who are they? The terrorists. Yeah. And and we have imported plenty of them over here. You wrote a book called The History of Jihad from Muhammad to ISIS. I uh, I held it up uh, earlier. It goes through 14 centuries of jihad, your last chapter deals with the 9-11 attacks in our country. What did you think when President Bush announced Islam is peace six days after Muslims killed 3,000 of us? And could he have honestly said that if he had read your book, The Politically Incorrect Guide to Islam of the Crusades? He could not have honestly said that. I don't know how he could honestly have said that even under the circumstances. He said it standing in front of, at a mosque, he said it in Washington. And he was standing in front of Nihad Awad, 
of the Council on American-Islamic Relations, which was named by the Justice Department an unindicted co-conspirator in a Hamas terror funding case. And he was standing in front of Abdurrahman Alamudi, who at that time was the head of the American Muslim Council, which is now defunct. And he was a leading Muslim. He was probably the leading Muslim spokesman in the United States at that time. And he met with all the presidents, and he was very well-connected. And now he's in prison for financing al-Qaeda. So that's who George W. Bush was getting advice from. It's no wonder that he did this. This wasn't done by CIA guys thinking, we want to avoid a larger war. He was listening to people who were on the other side. Um, do you think anybody ever brought that to his attention? Do you think he might have some regret? Because if he, if he has, he cer- I certainly haven't heard him express any. Yeah, I did actually a few months ago. Uh, you may have seen it too. I think there was a lot to it that didn't really get discussed. But uh, he was giving a speech somewhere, and he said, uh, and it's terrible how there's been this invasion of uh, a defenseless country for no reason by unscrupulous people who lied about their motives, something like that. I'm paraphrasing from, from dim memory, but you yeah. can look it up. It's not hard to find the video. And he says, it's terrible what happened to Iraq, and everybody's kind of shocked. And uh, uh, he stops and he says, I mean, Ukraine. Uh, Well, Iraq, too. And I couldn't believe it. And I thought, are you kidding around here, George? Because we know he likes to kid. Or are you actually aware of some of the catastrophic uh, missteps that you made? So, I mean, what do you think about our military response to 9-11 attacks, the so-called war on, on, on terror? I mean, again, we went after Saddam Hussein. We went after uh, Afghanistan. We ignored the Saudis. Uh, we created this 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 huge new uh, intelligence apparatus in the federal government. Uh, we took uh, airport security away from the airlines and created the TSA. Uh, we got to take your shoes off. Got to take your belt off. All kinds of things that we did a lot of which I think kind of missed the point. Oh, yeah, pretty much all of it missed the point. Uh, we didn't do anything about the ideology being spread. Um, and everything we did was wrongheaded about it because it was based on false pretenses that Islam was, here again, Islam was a religion of peace. So we made no effort to challenge the motivating ideology behind the attacks. We attacked the wrong countries that uh, were not involved in it, Iraq in particular. Afghanistan was just the place where the training camps were. If we really wanted to go after the countries that were responsible, we would have gone after Saudi Arabia and Iran. Those would have been much tougher wars. And Afghanistan and Iraq were tough enough as it is with the military we got now. So I am not calling for war or saying we should have gone to war with Saudi Arabia and Iran. Just saying that if that was the what was on the table, we attacked the wrong guys. Yeah. Uh, the whole thing, and in my book, Who Lost Afghanistan, that you mentioned before, I go through the whole campaign from 2001 to 2021 and showed how it was wrongly conceived, wrongly organized, wrongly executed, and wrongly ended. Every bit of it was wrong, and you could say the same thing about Iraq. Uh, there was a man named uh, Nabil Qureshi who grew up Muslim, became a Christian as an adult. 
Yeah, I knew Nabil. Yeah, yeah, I I knew that 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 you had met him. Um, as a Christian, he evangelized Muslims, sharing the Christian faith with them. But he also tried to explain Muslims to Christians because you can't really evangelize people you don't understand, mm-hmm. or at least you can't do as good a job trying to evangelize them. For that matter, you also can't defeat people politically whose mindset you don't understand. Anyway, Nabil said that when Christians have a disagreement about an aspect of the Christian faith or maybe just want to find out more about an aspect of the Christian faith, it's commonplace, not not unusual for them to open up the Bible to see what it says. But he said Muslims are the exact opposite. He said that if a Muslim has a question about his faith, it would never occur to him just to consult the Quran to find out what it says about a topic. Instead, the natural instinct is just to ask an imam to clarify things. This just seems so odd to me when I heard him talking about it on a, on a, on a video on YouTube. Do you have any idea why it's different for Muslims than it is for Christians? Well, the Christian, the New Testament says, uh, always be ready to give a defense for the hope that is within you. Yeah. That's 1 Peter 3.15. Yeah. The uh, Quran, I was just actually trying to get it on the screen here. Um, the Quran says something that's pretty much diametrically the opposite of that, and that's in chapter 5, verse 101. Oh, you who believe, do not ask about things which, if they were made known to you, would trouble you. Don't ask questions, see? But if you ask them about, uh, uh, but if you ask about them while the Quran is being revealed, in other words, if you live in the seventh century, they will be made known to you. Allah forgives this, for Allah is forgiving, merciful. A people before you asked and then became unbelievers. So uh, the Quran warns you: don't ask questions. And so the uh, position of a guy like Nabil, who was very knowledgeable, of course, yeah is that he was not, as far as I recall, if I recall correctly, a native Arabic speaker. And so he wouldn't go to read the Quran because the Quran has to be read in Arabic. He might have known Arabic, but he still wasn't uh, completely conversant like a native speaker is. And so he would not consider that he could just go to the Quran and get it because also the Quran contains this warning that if you ask a question, you might get get misled. So the best thing to do is to go to somebody who you think knows and let him tell you. And you're not asking in the sense that you're challenging him or trying to think something through for yourself. You don't do that. You just take what he says. And yeah, you, you just want to make sure that you're a good Muslim and 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 yes, and and crossing the T's, dotting the I's. So. This brings us to something we mentioned earlier. You recently released a book called The Critical Quran Explained from Key Islamic Commentaries and Contemporary Historical Research. Why is it important for us non-Muslims to get a book like this? Because you know as well as I do, 99% of Christians have never opened a Quran. Why is it important that they would look at this new Quran book that you did? The uh Muslims, we may not be thinking about the Muslims, but they're thinking about us. And 
as there is mass Muslim migration into Europe, and there's going to be Muslim majorities in European states, uh, Italy, Germany, France, UK, Sweden, probably within the next 20, 30 years. Uh, this is going to change the world in immeasurable ways. And it's, I think, incumbent upon Christians and other non-Muslims to be aware of what Islam has in store for us, because they will be here and be our neighbors, and this is going to transform society in ways people have no idea about. But for example, in Pakistan, just a few days ago, there were a couple of Christians who were accused of blasphemy for desecrating a copy of the Quran. And 26 churches were burned, and hundreds of homes of Christians were burned by Muslims who were enraged at this. And I was seeing all this and thinking, people have no idea, but this is going to be happening in the UK and in Germany and in Dearborn and in Newark and in Los Angeles in a lot sooner than people think. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So uh, in the interest of full disclosure, after the 9-11 attacks, when I noticed that Robert Spencer, who is a longtime friend of my family, was starting to write these best-selling books about Islam and about jihad, I would interview him when a, when a book would come out. And I would talk about his, his website, which he started about a year and a half after 9-11, called jihadwatch.org. And I was in Panama City, Florida, where there is a sizable Muslim community and the sizable Muslim community there in Bay County, Florida, um, wasn't too happy with me bringing Brother Spencer on the program. And so one time they got an imam all the way from Georgetown University to call up and challenge Robert Spencer live on the radio. Yes, yes, there's actually a mosque funded by the Saudis on the grounds of this Catholic university, Georgetown. And so. I, you've done thousands of interviews since then. I don't know if you remember this one too well, but your basic attitude was, oh, great. here you are an imam, a peaceful, moderate, mainstream Muslim who just wants everybody to get along. Let me give you some of the, uh, the, the, the verses there out of your Quran that guys like bin Laden are twisting, wink, wink, taking out of context. So you can explain to all Doc's listeners how they're hijacking your great religion of peace. And so you start talking about uh, slay the infidels, smite them on the neck, take no friends from among the Christians and Jews. Do you remember what the imam's response was? Uh, I'm sorry. No, you got to okay. help me out here. Okay, that's okay. The imam's response was classic. He said, well, what about Hitler? <laughs> Timothy McVeigh. Oh, yeah. And you and I are both going, uh, what a Hitler Timothy McVeigh have to do with this great opportunity we're giving you to explain to all Doc's Christian listeners how your great religion of peace is being hijacked by the bad guys like bin Laden. He's like, well, Hitler and Timothy McVeigh, they were Christians and they were terrorists. And, okay, we were like, okay, number one, they weren't Christians just because they were Caucasian and not Muslim. And number two, you're, you're missing a chance here to tell everybody how bin Laden's getting your religion of peace wrong. 
and he just couldn't do it. Um, and, and you're on social media a lot. You you get challenged to debate a lot by uh, Muslims who consider themselves to be, uh, you know, uh, quite the uh, apologists for for their faith, and they're thinking, how hard would it be? I can just knock this guy out uh, in a, in the debate. Uh, but if you have the truth on your side, that makes uh, things very difficult for them. And also, when you attempt to respond to people using logic and linear reasoning, and all they have is name calling, I mean, it, it, is it is it kind of like Groundhog Day for you? It's just the same thing over and over again? Yeah, absolutely. And really, uh, I've done a lot of debates with Muslim spokesmen, but it's always the same. You know, the uh, there's an old joke about... It's like trying to play chess with a pigeon, and all the pigeon does is knock over all the pieces and uh, and, and strut around on the board. And that's kind of like debating any Muslim cleric or Muslim spokesman because they, uh, they just engage in personal attacks. They change the subject. They play a lot of what about this and what about that games like your friend in Florida and never address the salient points and then they go around strutting about how they destroyed me in debate. Yeah. And so it's pointless, you know, uh, I'm happy to talk to anybody, but it's a lot easier to talk to somebody who's operating in good faith. And I've never, never yet in all these years found a Muslim spokesman who is operating in good faith and being honest about what the teachings of Islam are and what the implications of that are. Okay. So, there have been jihad attacks on American soil since 2001, most notably the Pulse nightclub attack in Orlando in 2016, Boston Marathon bombing 2013, Fort Hood shooting in 09, San Bernardino County Department of Public Health attack in 2015, and even a very recent jihad attack that hardly anyone in this country has heard about, Fargo, North Dakota, July of this year, the media is ignoring it. But And we'll get to that here in a moment. But there hasn't been another big attack like 9-11-2001. Does that surprise you? No, not really, because I know that after 9-11, there were some communications that were intercepted from uh, Al-Qaeda and other groups talking about how uh, it was important to change strategy and to focus on infiltration in the first place of uh, government and law enforcement, and that's done great. They've done that very well. And on small-scale attacks that would destabilize low-level government and law enforcement, uh, but not on the big catastrophic attacks, which they were considering brought far too much attention to their activities and their organizations and, and made it incumbent upon the United States government to take action against them in a way that it had not before and even though that action was, as we have discussed, completely wrongheaded and stupid and poorly executed, uh, it's worse than having them welcome you and buy you lunch and ask how they can help you, which is the strategy that they chose. So yeah. you have the Council on American Islamic Relations representatives, and they go into the Department of Homeland Security, and they, the, the DHS guys buy them lunch and ask them advice. You know, and get them tours. Yeah, explain what they do and how they do it and why they do it and the whole thing because mm -hmm. um, they're acting nice to me. They must be friends, right? Yeah, yeah. And so, they reject violence, so they're moderate. Oh, and, yeah. uh, that means they're our friends. 
Yeah, I mean, they're pro-Palestinian over there with the Israel, but, you know, but they reject violence. Yeah, uh, if they pressure Israel enough, then that'll be fixed, too. So let me delve into this attack in Fargo, North Dakota, July 14th, 2023. As we record this just a little over a month ago, could you tell our viewers a little bit about what happened that day? And yeah. Um, and the FBI, uh, once again, this guy was on their radar screen. Mm-hmm. Yes, he was. His name was Mohammed Barakat, and he had uh, quite a large assemblage of weaponry. And there were indications that what he was doing was planning to hit, uh, I forget what they call it, the Fargo, some kind of festival, big Fargo City Festival. Yeah. That was going on on that day. And there would be thousands of people there, just like, you know, any fair or festival uh, in any other state. And he was planning a massive jihad massacre at this festival. And he was on his way there. He was driving there with his with his trunk full of guns, automatic weapons, ready to kill hundreds of people. And there was a car accident a minor car accident, but it blocked the road and he couldn't get through to get to the fair. So he stood by there in the parking lot right next to the accident on the road and waited for the police to show up to deal with the accident. And when they did, he opened fire. He killed one policeman. He wounded two others. And then he was taken out in a firefight with a fourth. And immediately after that, the Fargo officials said they have no idea why he did this, even though every bit of his modus operandi corresponds to repeated exhortations from Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State to mount lone wolf attacks in the West, to blend in and appear secular, shave your beard, don't go to mosque, and then mount an attack when nobody's expecting it. Nobody has raised that as a possibility. It's not on their radar screen at all. And then it turns out the guy was reported to a terror database that the FBI maintains of people who are potential terror threats. And that was all we heard about that. Nobody has explained what he was doing that got him reported. Nobody has explained anything more about his motive. And there have been active attempts to cover the whole thing up, especially his motive. But that kind of thing is reflexive nowadays, Doc. There was another one recently. The guy didn't end up shooting anybody, but there was a teenager, a Muslim teen in Philly just last week, who was arrested, stockpile of weapons again, planning a large-scale jihad massacre again. His father turns out to be a very prominent uh, defense attorney in Philadelphia, Muslim also. And the first thing that the DA says, Larry Krasner, This has nothing to do with Islam. Islam is peace. It's just, it's a knee-jerk reaction by this point. All government officials and law enforcement officials know they have to say that, no matter what. And they'll be saying it, you know, when the guys come to slit their throats. They'll say, well, I just want to make it clear that you guys are not representing the true Islam and that real Islam is peace. Yeah. Yeah, Larry Krasner is one of those uh, prosecutors George Soros uh, funded, and uh, there are mothers of murder victims there in Philadelphia. 
in the African-American community who are furious with Larry Krasner for basically not going after the murderers. But that's that's one other show. Uh, Speak of the FBI. You had a draw Mohammed cartoon event. In Garland, Texas, May 3rd, 2015. And the FBI definitely had an eye. They had their eyes on your event. And, you know, this has been over eight years ago. Uh, Can you tell people what happened there and how the FBI's involvement was questionable? Yeah, it was uh, highly questionable, Doc. We, uh, Pamela Geller and I, organized that Muhammad Art Exhibit and Cartoon Contest in response to the massacre of the Muhammad cartoonists at Charlie Hebdo magazine in France in January 2015. And we were trying to make a statement that we were going to stand up against this bullying, this violent intimidation, stand up for the freedom of speech, and say, you say you're going to kill us if we draw Muhammad, that makes it incumbent upon us to draw Muhammad. Not because we're actually trying to offend you, but because if we bow to you in this, then you're just going to have more demands because you'll be encouraged. And this bullying will lead to more bullying, and you'll think you can get anything you want from the West by threatening to kill us. And of course, that's largely true. But in any case, uh, in those days, we were trying to take a stand against it. We knew what the stakes were. We knew what the implications were. And so we spent quite a lot of money. If I recall correctly, it was about $12,000 on security. And this was uh, uh, Pamela Geller and me. We raised money for this and hired the people ourselves. These were uh, retired NYPD. We had a SWAT team. We had uh, retired policemen from elsewhere. And we had one guy. A uh, great friend who has also now passed away since then, but he was organizing the security and he got in touch with the FBI and said, please let us know if you hear of any threats so that we can be prepared. And the FBI said, absolutely, you will be the first to know if we hear of any threats and we will be working with you and your team to stymie any people who try to, to, to stop this. Well, they were lying. Because they were in touch with a couple of Muslims, um, Ibrahim Simpson, a convert to Islam, Elton Ibrahim Simpson, and Nadir Sufi. And they were members of the Islamic Community Center of Phoenix, Arizona. And they drove eight hours from Phoenix to Garland, Texas, which is right next to Dallas. And they had guns and they were going to kill us all. The FBI knew that they were going to do this because they had been planning it for quite some time. They even bought tickets. They bought them under an assumed name. And, of course, I had no way of knowing. I was handling the ticket sales. I had no way of knowing that uh, I was selling tickets to these killers. Uh, The FBI actually came to my office, this very office where I'm speaking to you now. uh, And the FBI was in here, and they asked me for the list of the people who bought tickets. And they went through it, and they said, these two guys, those are the shooters. So uh, they did tell me that, but they didn't tell us anything else. They did not, above all, they did not alert. That was after the shooting, by the way. Sure, sure. Before the shooting, they didn't tell us anything about these guys. And there was, they didn't tell our security team that anybody was threatening our event. And they 
had an, an informant who was posing as a sympathizer, and maybe he was, because that guy was encouraging them to come shoot us all. Now, Doc, I've never been an FBI agent, but if I had been an FBI agent and I had heard that there was going to be a place where there were going to be two, three hundred Americans and that a couple of jihadis were going to come and try to kill as many of them, of them as they could, I would have had a couple hundred FBI agents there and police and whoever else was necessary to make sure that the Americans were safe and the jihadis were stopped. Yeah. But all the real FBI had was one guy who was actually encouraging the jihadists. Well, now, if I understand correctly, they did have one FBI agent there, right? Mm-hmm. And what did he do? The That was actually, yeah, that's right. There were two guys because they had one inside. And he was texting the guys outside, the jihadis and the informant, about our security arrangements. And then there was the guy, the informant, who was following the jihadis in a second car right behind them. They came into the parking lot one after the other. Yeah. And the two jihadis came out with their guns drawn, shot one of our guys, didn't kill him, shot him in the leg. And then they were shot by our guys. But the informant was encouraging them this whole time, telling them tear up Texas. Okay, so you, so the FBI had an agent inside who was texting the bad guys, and the guy who was tailing them was the informant. I thought the actual FBI agent was tailing them, but it was it was the the yeah, was the driving. FBI informant was tailing them, but they also had a guy inside, uh, and the guy inside was telling them about our security arrangements, which explains why they drew their guns. Because, see, I had sold them tickets, Doc, so they could have shown their tickets. They still wouldn't have gotten in because we had metal detectors. Yeah. But they didn't try to get in that way. They just drew their guns right away, which yeah. shows that they knew that we had security all over the place and they were going to have to fight their way in. Uh, but it didn't work out for them. But the F- no thanks to the FBI. The FBI clearly wanted us all dead. And the answer is full disclosure. Uh, May 2015 would have been right in the middle of the uh, four years in which, um, well, no, longer than four years, but May May of 2015 was when James Comey was the director. And Barack Uh, Obama had just said, the future must not belong to those who slander the prophet of Islam. Well, there you go. There you go. go. He meant it. There seems to be a pattern, though, with the FBI. Turns out the Russians had warned the FBI about the Sharnev brothers who perpetrated the Boston Marathon bombing. We hear a lot about the so-called lone wolf attacks, but don't a lot of these guys seem to be known wolves? The the FBI knows who they are. Yep. And, you know. Like Mohammed Barakat in Fargo. And it's over and over again we hear about this. So So the FBI really, you know, I grew up watching that show, the FBI. This is dating me. Nobody, I mention this sometimes and nobody's heard of it, but there was, there was a drama TV show in the 70s, the FBI, starring Ephraim Zimbalist Jr. as this FBI agent. And a I thought these guys are, yeah, sterling, unimpeachable, courageous patriots. And yeah. now I realize this is a corrupt, politicized, sinister organization that does not have the best interests of Americans at heart and ought to be shut down. There was a longtime congressman out of East Texas, Louis Gohmert, 
after the Boston Marathon bombing, he had um, Robert Mueller under oath. Mm-hmm. And he said, you know, the Russians warned you guys about these Sharnev brothers. You knew who they were. And you knew what mosque they attended. Did you do any surveillance of that mosque? And Robert Mueller took great umbrage. He was offended at the very idea that the Federal Bureau of Investigation would do surveillance of a mosque. He said, we did community outreach with the mosque. Yes. As they if they, they had be- potato salad with the, with the moms. They didn't do the slightest bit of investigating. And yet so many jihad terrorists have been connected to that mosque. Yeah. Well, look, you you have been uh, so gracious to uh, to spend such uh, an inordinate amount of time with us today. Let me uh, let me try to ask you one more thing here. If by some miracle. A Republican is actually elected president next year and is actually inaugurated January 20th, 2025. And actually appoints somebody good, somebody competent to be director of national intelligence. And that person were to reach out to you for advice. What would you tell them? I mean, other than watch your back around uh, John Brennan and James Clapper. That's for sure. Uh, Otherwise. Yeah. We need to readjust our entire approach to the jihad threat and uh, go into the mosques and uh, make sure that they are in a transparent and inspectable way teaching against jihad terrorism. And they would squawk and say, oh, this is Islamophobic, and why aren't you going into the synagogues? Fine. Okay, go into the synagogues. Go into the churches and make sure, uh, have them uh, make sure that they're teaching against terrorism. If you want to – I don't mind. You know, I, I don't think that's any problem if that's what it takes to get it done. But we need to be realistic about this threat. And uh, there's been no realism about it, as we've discussed in so many ways, ever since 9-11 and before that. So we need to challenge the Muslim communities to uh, reject all this, to show that they've rejected all this in an honest and verifiable manner, and uh, to reject the whole Islamophobia rhetoric and the whole edifice that's been built around it, that somehow this has to do with racism and bigotry when really it's an issue of security. And that's quite obvious. And they are as threatened as anybody else by the security risk that emanates from these mosques. Uh, We have to deal with the immigration question and the fact that we're bringing in all these people. We have no idea how many of them are jihadis and nobody's even checking. Well, we got to start to check. Yeah, And there's a great deal more as well. Forgive me, because I did forget one of the questions I got written down here. You used to speak to various military intelligence law enforcement groups at the federal level. Yeah, and the FBI. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, About the threat of jihad, why and when did that stop? That stopped in uh, 2010. And in 2011, it was made official because 57 Muslim organizations, including CARE and some of the others I mentioned before, they wrote to John Brennan who was then in the Department of Homeland Security and pretty soon after became the CIA chief. And they specifically named me and said that I should be fired as a trainer for military and FBI. 
and that all materials that mentioned Islam in connection with terrorism be removed. And Brennan immediately complied. He wrote back saying, oh, yes, we will do this. He did it. That's when the Obama administration began the Countering Violent Extremism Program, which very studiously never explained who the violent extremists were. And so at that time, I was I was uh, objecting to it on the basis of the fact that they were ignoring jihad and refusing to admit its existence. But now we see that it's even worse than that because violent extremists are an elastic, that's an elastic grab bag kind of term. And you can make anybody into a violent extremist. And now this very sinister regime that's in power is making ordinary Americans who object to the left's authoritarianism and to the sexualization of children and so much more that's coming out of the regime. They're the violent extremists now. And so the other shoe has dropped. Yeah. There's a guy named Philip Haney wrote a book, uh, see something, say nothing. And, and um, he worked for, I believe, DHS and it yes, put together yes, uh, uh, a broad range, uh, a database about all these jihad influences. And after um, Obama took over, he talked about seeing them basically deleting his stuff out of the government computer system in, in, in real time. And I interviewed him a while back uh, and he, uh, he died under very mysterious circumstances. Very couple, highly questionable. A couple of bullets on the side of a highway there in Northern California. Um, so much could be said. Uh, Robert Spencer, the website is jihadwatch.org. Um, some, some great books like the New York times bestsellers, the politically incorrect guide to Islam and the crusades, the truth about Muhammad, uh, bestsellers like the history of jihad from Muhammad to ISIS. Let me hold that up again. Looks like this. Um, and the, uh, the critical Quran explained from key Islamic commentaries and contemporary historical research. Uh, the book you have out right now. The Sumter Gambit, how the left is trying to foment a civil war. Sumter, of course, being about, uh, I guess, Fort Sumter, mm-hmm. the start of the uh, civil war in 1861. The first one. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Do you uh, you have any any parting words you'd like to share with our viewers today? Uh, well, these are tough times, but these are the times that try men's souls, as Tom Paine said, and we have to be courageous, understand that... Uh, our comfortable lives may be drawing to a close and we have to be willing to uh, make some sacrifices and take some risks to preserve freedom and pass it on to our children and grandchildren. Amen. As a wise man once told me, work like everything depends on you. Pray like mm-hmm. depends on God. There you go. Maybe I'll learn that lesson. <clears throat> uh, Robert Spencer, jihadwatch.org. Uh, God bless your brother. Thank you so much for coming on the Doc Washburn show today. And we, We wish you Godspeed. You too, Doc. Thank you. Okay, it's time for the Tweet of the Day, brought to you by Red River Auto, the big old car dealership in the middle of the USA that believes in freedom, including your freedom, to buy the car, truck, van, or SUV of your choice online the way you want to and have it delivered to your front door anywhere in the continental USA. Tweet of the Day. Uh, Today's tweet of the day is a recent tweet from Senator Rand Paul. 
And he tweeted out an article from his former counsel, Brian Darling, which originated on LinkedIn. TheHill.com picked it up, and it is entitled The Criminalization of Politics to Get Trump is Endangering Everyone's Rights. Now, I will preface sharing this article with you with one caveat. Brian Darling and I disagree on one thing. He says he does not believe that the 2020 presidential election was stolen. I'm pretty sure it was. So why am I sharing his article with you in this tweet of the day today? Because everything else he says in this article is so important that I wish every American would read it. That's why. So here's what he says. The U.S. Constitution is clear. Political speech is protected by the First Amendment. Also, battles over the acceptance of electors to validate a presidential election are wholly within the political realm and should not be subject to criminal sanctions. Yet our nation is very close to setting a dangerous precedent by criminalizing speech and politics, and one political faction is rushing into this folly headlong. If the Biden administration is allowed to criminalize speech and politics, we will become a nation where the losers of presidential elections are arrested instead of being sent into retirement with book tours and libraries. The criminalization of politics is a dangerous game that Democrats used to decry when they thought the shoe might end up on the other foot. No matter how you feel about former President Donald Trump's activities after the 2020 election, the reaction of putting Trump in jail for his speech and activities to organize opposition to Congress counting electoral college votes would degrade our political system and set the precedent that one party can criminalize the political activities of the other. Notwithstanding all the legal spin you're hearing on a day-to-day basis from talking heads on cable television, it is a fact that the First Amendment to the Constitution vindicates the freedom of political speech. When you hear the talking point that, quote, you can't yell fire in a crowded theater, unquote, know that the media are trying to gaslight you to make you believe that there are limits to political free speech, when in fact there aren't. If the government is permitted to redefine the Bill of Rights as something subjective and not containing inalienable rights, then the government can take anyone's rights away, including yours. Yelling fire in a crowded theater has nothing to do with political speech. It's also a red herring in the discussion of free speech. 
The position that this is an exception to the First Amendment was disowned a century ago by the justice who first coined the phrase and subsequently by a Supreme Court majority. Yet the left today is using the fire in a theater example as a pretext for criminalizing some political speech and to make believe that your natural rights to express unpopular political beliefs has limits. It does not. No, you can't incite a riot. No, you can't threaten to kill somebody. And you can't libel another person either. But these things are not what the First Amendment to the Constitution recognizes as an absolute right. Freedom of speech, like our other rights, does not derive from government. They are natural. Some would say God-given rights. They predate the Constitution. The right not to be jailed for expressing political opinions is a natural right that government cannot take away, recognized but not given to us by the Constitution. Regarding Trump's so-called fake electors scheme and the attempt to manipulate the counting of electoral college votes in 2021, that was a political exercise that is protected by the Constitution. I don't agree with efforts to reject election certificates by Congress, nor do I believe Trump's contention that the vice president ever had the power to do such a thing. Yet I also recognize that this effort to game the system was a clear case of political and legal maneuvering, not of criminal conspiracy. If you want to imprison Trump for attempting to disenfranchise voters on these grounds, then you might want to look at Trump critic, Representative Jamie Raskin, Democrat, Maryland. Look at his antics when he tried to disenfranchise all the Floridians who voted in the 2016 election. Well, what about after the 2004 re-election of President George W. Bush when 31 Democrats voted not to seat the electors from Ohio based entirely on bogus conspiracy theories about voting machines? Should Jamie Raskin and all those Democrat House members who tried to disenfranchise voters be prosecuted for their attempts to negate the sacred voting rights of American citizens? Their actions were morally wrong and violated their sacred oaths. Yet, I believe it would be wrong to hold them criminally liable for such engagement in partisan politics. With regard to the cases against Trump in Georgia and Washington, the courts should simply dismiss the charges. Our constitutional system relies on the good faith of politicians which is lacking today, to uphold their oaths and take ethical actions that respect the unalienable rights of the people to engage in political speech and politics. The freedom of political speech is absolute. The idea that politicians can work to seat different slates of electors or that they can speak or vote against seating electors is wholly within the realm of politics. 
Most agree that disenfranchising voters is wrong, yet the system held against such chicanery on January 6th. Biden's victory was duly recorded. Attempts by Republicans and Democrats to disenfranchise voters over the years have repeatedly failed. The use of Trump to set a new standard that criminalizes engagement in politics and free speech will endanger every voter's rights. Let's hope this effort to criminalize politics fails. Now, that is Brian Darling, former counsel to Senator Rand Paul, Republican of Kentucky. Article entitled, The Criminalization of Politics to Get Trump is Endangering Everyone's Rights. And you can find it in thehill.com. And that is your tweet of the day brought to you by Red River Auto. Big old car dealership in the middle of the USA that believes in freedom, including your freedom to buy the car, truck, van, or SUV of your choice the way you want to online and have it delivered to your front door anywhere in the continental USA. Tweet of the day. You've been watching episode 403 of the all-new Doc Washburn Show. Be sure to hit the subscribe button on our YouTube channel to help our videos be seen by more people. And be sure to hit that notification bell. The views and opinions expressed on the Doc Washburn Show do not necessarily reflect those of our advertisers, but they love us and we love them. If you have any questions for us, email us at contact at docwashburnshow.com. Today's program has been produced by Tim Terrible, directed by Mick Messy. This has been a terribly messy production. Portions of today's show will be taken overseas and dropped. If you'd like a transcript of today's episode of the all-new Doc Washburn Show, simply peel the roof off a Rolls-Royce panel truck and send it to Mansour's Computer Solutions, 7th floor of the Ephemeral B. Smoot Building, Whitehall, Arkansas, in care of Sheriff Mansour Sempier X. Senior Vice President, Engineering, IT, and Interoperability for the Doc Washburn Show. Well, that's the way it was. Friday, September 8th, 2023.